Welcome to Deep Color, the oral history project and podcast series that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. Each recording is casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Please help sustain this project by becoming an official patron through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. There are very reasonable donation tiers for supporters to choose from and feel good about. In doing this, you acknowledge the time and labor that goes into creating Deep Color and appreciate its value. You can also help by sharing Deep Color within your community and by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for helping to make these conversations about art and the creative process possible. This episode profiles Spencer Lewis. Spencer makes abstract paintings using a mix of acrylic, oil, and spray paint on jute or burlap and cardboard. He also makes sculptures that operate like monuments to the paintings or parts of paintings presented three-dimensionally. He typically works intuitively by attacking the surface through aggressive mark making and smears, building up layers and wiping them out, and dragging the work across his studio as a way to interrupt his hand and build up a patina. This system of working results in explosive gestures, caked up textures, and a tangle of color, all usually centered or just off-center within the picture plane. There is a fantastic sense of exploration in Spencer's work, and a curious exchange between organization, chaos, and beauty. This conversation was recorded remotely. I was in Brooklyn, New York, which is the unceded land of the Lenape people. Spencer was in Los Angeles, which is the unceded land of the Tongva people. And I know, I know through through your Instagram account that you are a sports fan, and I thought it would be kind of an out of the ordinary start to talk about sports first. Yeah, cool. Um, and I, I, I think I can presume that you're a LA Lakers fan, which is a basketball team, and an LA Rams fan, which is the football team, uh, who who are going to the Super Bowl, uh, which is pretty exciting. Um, but when I was a kid, and this is in the, you know, 1900s I'm talking about here, uh, it was, it wasn't necessarily as acceptable as it is today, thank goodness, to have an interest in sports and art. And I'm so, th- I'm so thankful that like the, the world has opened up and, and we've become, uh, we've become more accepting and acknowledging of all the like connections between art and life. Yeah. Um, and I guess I, I wondered how you became a sports fan. Um, and if you see any of those connections between the, 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 the aesthetic of professional sports and maybe even your own artwork. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is so funny because I feel like we could talk, this could be a whole, uh, podcast, but I got into sports because, uh, in school it's a requirement. But I learned from my mother that my dad really wanted me to be in sports. So my dad is a very uh, interesting guy, but he was he believed that sports helps you with teamwork and leadership and these type of things. So to him, I guess it was integral that I did these things. So interestingly, when I was in high school, I was one of the three captains of my football team. And I also was one of three art award recipients for whatever that's worth. And when I went to RISD, there was another guy at RISD who was a walk-on on the Brown football team because uh, they have that relationship. So I kind of thought about doing that myself, but my knees are very shot. Um, I see a ton of connections between the two. Um I also wanted to say, I do think about like when I've taught how often in your undergrad classes, there'll be like a kid who's a huge jock, a, a woman too, like at UCLA, we had like a, a woman on the national championship soccer team and like, but they're like great artists or maybe they're not even great. They're just super into it. So, but you know, I, I like it. I like to get to know athletes just like anybody else. And yeah, of course, I think they're performative 
skill is an art. I mean, for basketball, it's it's amazing. And so I, I tend to try to maybe ignore the physicality of the action painting that I do. Um, but yeah, of course, they're super related, I think. Yeah, I would agree. And I identify with, with that story you're saying. I, I mean, I played on a soccer team and a basketball team from age five until 18 and then chose to go to art school. And then I was able to put that down, but it was, it was like central to my identity. And I think also informed how I think about making a painting. Sometimes it's sort of athleticism and making a mark or a gesture. Um, Let's, let's jump right into process. You know, I was excited to talk to you about how to make a painting and how to build a picture as a painter myself. Um, and I know through doing a little bit of research that using materials and surfaces that are not precious is, is an important foundation, if I can call it that to how you, how you begin Mm -hmm. making a painting. Can you talk about why you don't want to work with fussy materials and, and maybe what led you to, to using things that are kind of, easy to get a and B it's okay if, if it doesn't work out. Yeah. I mean, I think if I look at my whole history of being an artist, um, when I was young, I kind of worked with raw material cause they were just around and I'd ride around my bike. And I mean, I saw the movie Basquiat and I painted on palettes that I found. So there was this very like, I don't know if it was romantic or it was just like I really did need to express myself. You know, when you're young, I think being a teenager, there's so much feeling, you know. So that was a pretty authentic uh, need to express. And then, you know, I went to art school and I my mom was an artist, but I, you know, it was like trying to fit into the box of like painting on canvas. But I was always like making big tracing paper installations and all this weird stuff. So it's always been there. It's only like the whole history of Western art that makes me want to paint on a nice linen surface and be like a mask, you know? And I think that pressure is really hard. Uh, I admire people who do it. I, I do it from time to time, work on a canvas that's stretched and all that crap. But like, it's not, you know, one of the great things about being old, I'm 42 now, is I stopped caring about that. And so I stopped caring what other people thought or, you know, my projection of what other people thought to some degree. Of course, we all think about other people who are in the studio, but also as an issue of economics. And I think this is important for younger artists or, you know, mid young artists. If you want to engage in the art world, you have to figure out a way. And I think for me, I needed to make more work and I needed to work through a lot of things. And I still have a lot of feelings and want to trash things and get it all out there. And so I found these materials that I could do that. And once that kind of clicks that, like, it doesn't matter what other people think, you need to just do what you got to do. And you find your sort of uh, medium to do it in. It's like the world is your oyster. So having those materials really helped me. So specifically for both cardboard and burlap, their surface is more absorbent, uh, which allows me to make the paintings more sculptural. So it becomes less about rendering and more about like layering or, uh, you know, I don't have to deal with the canvas as a window. Yeah. The absorption rate of a piece of cardboard is going to be different, right? Like I work on a lot of paper and I've just become uh, sort of reliant on how paper holds my mark. I like it. I don't like how canvas absorbs paint. Uh, <laughs> right. So, so I hear you on that. And, and let's just go back to like the pressure cooker of working on a pristine, expensive surface, right? Like when I'm in those situations and I try to avoid them myself, I, th- my whole approach is tight. Um, I'm not relaxed. So I think the challenge or the trick, if we can call it that, is, is, is how do we spin that? How do we make it so that this thing can be ours? We can, we can um, kind of proverbial hug it and accept it and not be intimidated by it, you know? So mm-hmm. I hear you on like, you know, affordable materials and, and, and things that are easy to find. 
in the past, you know, I mean, we're still talking about whatever, 500 years of canvas paintings. I don't know if it's more now, but you would do, or, or a fresco, it's like you would do your studies, you would do your cartoons, you would, like, that's still a very viable way of working. And I think there's a lot of artists that still work like that. That's where they do their studies and that's where they do this. And they have some idea and it's like, that's amazing, you know? I'm just not mentally prepared for that. Like I need to work in a much more spastic way. Um, we've been given this like gift of modernism and postmodernism. That's there's something very powerful to that. And it's like I I personally love old master work. Like we were just in Brussels, and it's like that's what I like to look at myself. But uh, I don't think I'd want that lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess still on like how, like, I'm curious what your first moves are when you tack up a piece of jute, of raw mm-hmm. jute on the wall. I, I noticed that you work with just unstretched jute tagged to the wall. Um, sometimes on a ladder, these things are often big. Um, I know you use brushes. You probably use oil sticks or bars to, to kind of draw with mm-hmm. and move paint around. I know you make small drawings. I don't know if those are sort of studies or they're a separate thing, but what's the first move, I guess, when you have that surface up? Yeah. I mean, obviously there's like a lexicon of uh, mark making that you want to do. So you come up with a process, you know, like for a while I was starting some with spray paint and for a while I was starting some with gesso. And, and I think, you know, to, to really describe it's different every time, but to the spirit of your question is for me, it's to attack the the surface in some ways is to just do anything. I was fascinated. I drew for so many years, obviously, like I had sketchbooks and I haven't had studios and I was always like, you make a mark and now it can go in any direction on this page. Right. So there's an infinite number of second marks. For me, the next mark has always been like, well, you, you push a gesture out. Why don't you pull it back? And so I think I just have the gesture that I've made from drawing from a kid, which is like a, a up and down scribble. <laughs> but, you know, I was telling a friend recently that I have always um, been sensitive to other people. So when I was in school, you know, your first years, you're in a little cubicle before you get your own studio. Um, I would always really try to dominate the space. And so when I had shared studios, I mean, I had a case where I made a big aggressive painting and the teacher at RISD like came and they put all this furniture in front of my painting because I was being taking up too much space and they really wanted to like stifle my ambition. But I'm just very aggressive, you know, so how do I start? I start like usually aggressive, but also it's just like I'm open to the experience. Just getting anything down is the way to do it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It it does seem... Um like an attack. I like this word attack. And I can see kind of like working from the shoulder, like these big kind of slashes, almost mm-hmm. like, uh, someone taking a machete to, a like a shrub or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, cool. uh, I also know from reading about your work that you drag your unstretched canvases or, or linens around on the floor. And I wonder if that's a, uh, a tactic to create some sort of gesture that's out of your control or to fuck up the surface or create a patina. Um, maybe it's all those mm-hmm. things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, exactly. There was a time where I used to make paintings on canvas and um, like I, I worked on stretch when I was a kid, I worked on stretch when I was a teenager and then I'd roll them up and I'd say, Oh, I'm letting these depreciate in value. Like I really liked that they'd, age over time and that would get that patina and you know even when i look at old cracked paintings it's like the patina is a context that's very it's very interesting how we can like excuse things based on their context right so uh but you know again with the mark making it's like once you make a mark on canvas you're making a space like immediately and luckily with the jute it's not quite like that because it's not stretched yet but yeah exactly it's like you're making some underground atmosphere to start responding to. For years, I thought of my work as responsive abstraction. That's what I called it. Um, And then also, 
I'm very interested in something that I used to call no moves, which is like you're making the subject and then over here you're making like a little mark to like ignore. <laughs> no, I hear you. Like it's creates like the these, atmosphere. These uh, like the activity within the picture plane, like creating a mark to kind of distract from a different mark in this other area or to give it some sort of context for the viewer to like bounce off to or to like mm -hmm. point out power in this area. I get that for sure. Yeah. Um, well, and like, what's the subject of the painting and like, yeah. what's the subject's relationship to the surface or, yeah. you know, the object. So, yeah. Yeah. And intuition seems important. Um, you know, that's something I use in, in my studio, kind of like trying to be, both present and removed at the same time to kind of get at a mark that I don't think I could make if I was trying to, right. um, you know, kind of the, the antithesis to rendering in a, in a way or something like that. Um, can you talk a little bit about how intuition works for you and, and how you breathe it into your work? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the no move. It's like the sideways glance. It's like, you know, we are working with our third eye, so to speak, not in like some great like DMT, uh, conversation but like you know that we can make pictures in our mind uh, <laughs> I just think it's so cool that like you know you take this object you know often for me it's this hand which has a shape and you're getting paint on it and how is that gonna like press onto the surface so but there's this huge distance right um that you just cannot know. And I don't, I, you know, I have rendered, right? I have painted figures, you have a process, but everyone, every painter has to deal with this, the space between themselves, the material, the canvas and the image. And so uh, you can't know. How much do you want to engage with that? I don't know, it's, it's kind of like a black hole, but for some of us, it's like, uh, what it is to me is that like, it's amazing that we can make paintings. And so it's amazing that we have these images. And so it's like, how could I turn away from that part of making work? You know, uh, it's really like, despite all odds, you make magic. It's, I'm still really floored by it. So Yeah, that, that's well said, that the magic of it. I like this word always. I guess to challenge intuition um, or, or, or making intuitive marks or the no look. I like this phrase, no look. I feel like I do see repetition or like a sense of practice, not, not like this is my studio practice, but like practicing a, a move, practicing mm -hmm. a mark in your paintings. Yeah. And this comes through in the form of like pointing out the armature of the rectangle, working mm -hmm. with a grid. Is there, is there space to talk about how those sort of um, mathematical ways of dividing up picture space or, or the picture plane um, invites intuition or how it holds like this tangle of marks and smears that you put on top of it? Yeah, I think, right. Okay. I think some of that is just like, I do think most, I think all art, am I going to say this? I do think all art is kind of process art, right? Like you build to a process, right? So I made these what I called cage paintings where you bisected the canvas a certain amount of times and it was to have a system, you know, and I worked for Mark Grochon for so many years and I saw how powerful a system can be. So I was doing some things and it came about, I'm, you know, part of being an artist is being opportunistic. Like if there's a way to make images, you should do it. And so I'm kind of fascinated by it, but I don't want to get too into be like oh geez. I don't want to be too studied about it you know I think there's great concepts and stuff that come from modernism and the bisecting of the canvas and I think there's great it relates to like perspectives of the renaissance you know and I but it's like I don't want to hold on to that too hard because I'm not really smart enough to like figure that all out so yeah I think some of it was just a strategy and I think that was really cool. And some of it is a space I've been making since I was a kid drawing, which are like, like I said, it's really this, where's the second stroke going to go? And it becomes this nest. And at times then that nest means something to me. It starts to look like figures. And that's how I worked when I was a kid. And I've thought of it as like a thing of like God. And I think, I think like uh, if you're making canvas work, I think you're interested in space. Like, 
I know there's this object quality, but I'm interested in space. You know, I know I, I struggle with the picture of the window, but I'm still interested in space. So yeah, yeah. that's what the gestures are for. Absolutely. Like yeah. making space and, you know, they, um, they it gives them resonance, which makes me have feelings, which I like. And it allows me to be aggressive and attack, uh, like delete a painting. I can like cover up a whole painting with a gesture and just be like, fuck this whole thing. And then it's like, oh, cool. Actually, this looks great, you know? And, I'm, and I think people have seen like you fight through the surfaces. I think um, like with vision science, I do think we're still kind of animals where you like see into the jungle. So you start to see, like, I think there are cones and rods, scientific, this is my girlfriend knows this stuff, but like, we're programmed to see certain things and see certain ways and find out what a thing is. I think that's a huge foundation of painting. I don't think we could make images if our minds didn't make up or look for figures in the jungle or whatever. I guess we were, yeah, we were probably on the planes by then, but you know, so. Yeah. I mean, I think our, our, we're hardwired to look for, for like edges and contrast and ourselves in the jungle. Uh, if we're going right. to use that allegory, um, and we're looking for order, we're looking for organization. Um, and maybe I can pivot that to the, why I sometimes use an armature underneath all my marks is it's a way to organize the space. And it's also yeah. a way to, you know, to go back to like the, the taking the pressure off of that empty ground it allows me to see, see relationships a little bit better or measure relationships a little bit better. Anyways, sounds like, yeah, but don't you think, yeah, I think there's like, um, there's this kind of like disparateness and then organization, you know, like disorganizing and then reorganizing. And oh, I work well it, yeah. you know, and I work in this way that I think I work uh, like in so many multicolors, it, like this kind of like juvenile way. And I think in a way that could look really bad and somehow they do look good sometimes. And I think like our ability to reorganize it is, uh, is part of it. For sure. Part of making art, yeah. Let's talk about painting as an object. I know you also make three-dimensional work. I know that some of your work was free from the wall and involved like a, a, a large painting with a kickstand so that the all sides and like the front, the back, the sides were all activated and surfaces to hold information. And you're also invo inviting viewers to walk around and see the backside of the thing. Um, you had that that show recently at Canada in New York that involved sculptures on the floor and then sometimes right in front of a painting on a wall. I mean, clearly you're thinking about painting as an object and painting is more than just this two-dimensional thing on the wall. Can we get into that a little bit and why you bring in this objectness of a painting? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's easier, like going back to cardboard and it's easier to paint on an object than a window it's just actually easier but um i was thinking about this recently like i like jackson pollock but you know it's like the reason it feels dated to me or whatever is like he's got these big marks but they don't really resonate they don't like come off the canvas really you know i have this i think i'm just like a um sensation junkie you know like I just want sensation so like I really want things to have presence in some ways I always think of sculpture as like a little bit easier which I know is a dangerous thing to say but because you're dealing with a real object you know because I'm from like the Duchampian ready-made school like Home Depot whatever it's not sophisticated but um that's important. Like the real object is important, but then like, you know, this mystery and this illusion is also important. So like, and going back to like you said about practicing, I draw on the phone. I practice my gestures on my phone. So there's this mix between like the image, the digital, the object. I think if I could paint, if I could focus and make like these master paintings that were like my work, but rendered and you really felt like, Trump Loy, you were like falling into a digital painting. Uh, maybe I wouldn't be as interested in the sculpture, but I, I want something real to hold. <laughs> and at the same time, I want it to feel like 
the magic of illusion of something like a lightning bolt flashing. So these are all just kind of like flailing attempts at doing that. Um, I get that. You know, the the yeah. weight is different. The weight of an object is like a quote unquote object is different than a, the weight of a painting on a wall. Sometimes, I mean, there can be weight in a, in a painting for sure. Do you distinguish between sculpture and painting or is it, can it all be one thing? Yeah. I mean, I often feel like again, with the jute and being absorbent that I'm making kind of a sculpture. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, they're definitely different. I got really into the idea when I was painting on cardboard that there was like a front and a back versus like a front wrapped around a box. Cause when we look at paintings, we never think about like the box that it is really. I mean, I know there's like a whole history of people who did, but again, like the painting as window, you completely delete the guts. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, there's something interesting to me about it just being an object. So like the works on cardboards, yeah, I think that's a little bit of a painting on an object. I think that line is blurred. Um, I got really into like that the backside of a paper that you draw on is like a whole nother blank window, like two windows going together infinitely. So again, even though I keep saying like I'm against the window, like the window's part of it. So there is a distinction. I, I'm clearly trying to blur the lines a lot, but yeah, there's a big distinction. But painting yeah. and sculpture go hand in hand, I guess, for me. I don't know why that is. Yeah, I mean, the I, I think there's a there's like a formal relationship between the sculptures you're making and your paintings. I see like some of your gestures realized in like a piece of whatever you found in some alleyway or something, just like lobbed right. onto this thing, right? I mean, I know you do bronzes too. Even this 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 tilted up desk that was in that was in Canada recently um, has, has like the presence of one of your paintings just in like yeah. the, gun the gunked upness of it all. So for sure. Yeah. I mean, I spent a lot of time making that desk that you just could have bought, but uh, <laughs> I love thinking of sculptures and furniture. I always want them to be stages where you're like performing something on, I guess I also think of the jutes when they're just hanging out of the wall is like tents. Uh, so there's definitely a performative place. There's definitely a place there, you know, and maybe place is the, the word that could resonate with both the paintings and their kind of monumental size. I feel like really a powerful pull to space, you know, like going to the opera or like last night I was at this fashion show and they like dim all the lights and put spotlights. Like I'm really into space. Yeah. I can see that in the paintings and the scale you're working um, to create that space, but also I imagine having that space to move, um, you know, like making a, a drawing that fits on the kitchen table just feels entirely different than making a painting that takes up an entire wall in your studio. Like that, that physical movement and interaction is just vastly different. Yeah, well, you get all those different hits. You get to look at it from far away, medium, and up close. I mean, yeah. Back to that yeah. shoulder mark versus the wrist mark, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah. like, uh, I mean, it's it's just a little bit richer in that way. And let's pivot into content and talk about some of the ideas uh, that that are in your work. You know, I read a few things in preparing to speak with you, and I, I made a little list of some like I would call key phrases that, that were popping up in some of these texts. And I, and I wanted to play them back to you and to see if, if you yeah. agree with them or if you disagree. Formlessness, lyrical, anti-form. I guess that connects back to formlessness. Bodily, neglected, and muscle formalism, which is kind of the opposite of formlessness in a way. Um, <laughs> I mean, these are all just like descriptors and someone's like doing their, doing their job to try and captivate the reader but how do you feel about those those descriptors do they land for you uh yeah i mean like i say i try to be pretty laissez-faire with other people's statements because um like my first review was like spencer lewis brings nothing new to abstract expressionism and i don't think about ab my work as abstract expressionism but i mean i guess it is you know and like when it comes to formalism like like big f formalism like i don't you know, I'm interested in painting language. I think one of the things that's amazing when you're looking at the surface is like that it is a true, it's nonverbal language. And all the parts uh, like utterances, 
have meaning and they link up to make greater meaning. And I mean, you were talking about pattern, but so, you know, nobody ever talks about that really in my work, probably because there is a history of impainting that I don't bring up because I don't really know it. Yeah, formless, you know, I, I like to think about the abject and destroying something and making it more beautiful. Um, I like anti-formal, but it's not just strictly destroy the picture because I am making images. I found figures in my work. So like I think about, uh, you know, the object and the subject, but the figures are pretty obfuscated. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I don't to I don't really I don't even really like artist statements except for, you know, like the galleries always want to write something and I'm like, just write something. Like don't involve me with this shit. Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, th those are for a specific audience too, and that's usually yeah. not artists. <laughs> but uh um or maybe that's maybe that's too flip to say. But you know, I think it's important to mention that that you are working in, in abstraction and in non representational picture making. Um, and that is such a playground for the viewer in terms of what it can be and what it can mean. Um, and it's so subjective, you know, for me as a viewer, there's something about an interpretation of beauty. Um, and there's, there's some idea about overlooked beauty or, or what, what beauty can be. Um, that's an idea for me. And then like, I'll bring my own lived experience to how I've been thinking about your work in the lead up to our conversation here. You know, I went to the natural history museum this weekend with my kids and I was in, um, hall of biodiversity and I'm looking around and I'm seeing Spencer's paintings. You know, there's the <laughs> ocean floor. There's, there's like the tentacles to a jellyfish. Um, I know those are not explicit ideas in your work, but I'm latching on yeah. to some of these things that I'm looking at with my kids. Um, and then when I take a step back, like I see calligraphy, I see glyphs, I see bits, mm. bits of the contour of figure drawing. I see a word, a written word that's been dissected or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I see that aggression, that attack, that like smear, that like, fuck that area. I'm going to mess it up because that's going to be better than the thing that I could do intentionally or something like that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of like disgusting areas that like I just wouldn't want, but like I'm trying to have a relationship with those. So I, I do think some of the subject of the work is, like I said, language, but it's about, you know, I hate to say it's about the maker because it's like I don't want it to be like just that this is a recording of history, but like um, it's about the maker's response to these issues. And I think, you know, I have found that the viewer has them too. You know, I remember being an undergrad and one of my teach under, undergrad, one of my teachers said like, this looks like a bird. I think a kid would find a bird in this, you know? And then I've worked the areas I work in my studio. Like I kind of leave the door open and people come by and like they're high or they're, you know, they're just not interested in art, but whatever. And they see a lot of stuff in the painting. Like, was, is that my intention to like set out in life and make like work for kids to see stuff? No, not at all. Like, but it's, it's there. It's very weird. That, and I've had this experience for, you know, God, 20 years of people coming up to me after my shows or like seeing someone on the street and saying, I saw your show and I liked this and I love this and I thought this and that is cool. That's actually cool. You know, like that other people bring something to you. In that way. Yeah. That's that playground, I guess I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, I read that there's some biography embedded into your work and mm. um, particularly around loss and learning. And I wondered if you'd be comfortable sharing a bit bit on those ideas. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know what the learning part is. Um, part of the uh, part of the part of the loss is my mom died in twenty third beginning of twenty thirteen, and you know, my mom taught me a lot about art, uh, and we were very close, but uh, maybe not as close towards the end of her life, but. You know, I just had a lot of feelings, and that's what I was talking about with you earlier. And um, it's when I started working on cardboard. You know, it's when I started being a little bit like, fuck this, I'm just going to get my feelings out. And so there's all these life, you know, like I worked when I was young, but 
I really got into oil paint as a teenager because I had a, a breakup with my girlfriend and it affected me strongly. And I really dove into working and working more, you know, so these life things kind of do affect your work that you don't have a control over. I guess that's what I'd say is you don't have a control. Like you, the, one of the key things of life is you're cruising along and then life is not done with you. So, you know, as an artist, you work through your feelings, through your work a little bit. I think most artists, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, I identify with that. I mean, so much of making a painting and working in studios, processing what I'm going through. It's, it's trying to figure out what I believe in. It's, right. it's packaging all these complicated ideas and experiences and interactions and relationships into a thing that, that kind of holds all these things I don't have answers to. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It sort of sounds like, well, your mind is making like your mind, you know, for people who do mindfulness, I don't, but it's like your mind's making these narratives all the time. And right. We're, we're totally super smart. So we have all these crazy ass ideas, nonverbal, by the way, which is, you know, again, like painting doesn't get enough credit for the nonverbal image response of like the unconscious, if you believe in that, like, anyway, <laughs> uh, so yeah. And what a great place to process. Like if you can't do therapy and talk with words, like get uh, it out on the canvas. Yeah. Well, and just have that relationship. You know, people always say the process is the important part and it's an annoying thing to say, you know, because everybody has these goals and has these objects, attachments, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I think you'll find whoever's listening like the more you get, the further you get in art, the more success you have in life or the further you get in life, you're just like, shit, I really need to be, find what I'm doing valuable. Yeah, that's well said. Let's talk about context and where where your art, art is or where your work is and how that context can change how you might feel about it. Mm-hmm. Do you feel differently about your work when it's in the studio versus when it's in a fancy gallery versus when it's in a book? Um, how how does your, how does like how you view and feel about your own work change depending on the context it's in? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I try to be super open to things and I, we just did a book. So I think if people have access to that book or whatever, you'll see like, uh, yeah, books difficult, you know, images on, or, you know, we have to deal with Instagram and stuff like images of your work are not good. And part of being an artist, if you want to show is figuring out how to make them good but everybody knows the real stuff is in real life. You know, like you have to go see the painting. It can't be said enough, even though everybody knows it, you have to go see the painting. Um, it looks nothing like the image. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, particularly on a small I'm, screen. Yeah, I'm getting like really passionate about this, but it seems like something that we all know, again, you just have to see it. Uh, in terms of the studio, you know, it's kind of like that context thing I was saying earlier, like with the cracks, like you can forgive a lot of stuff when a painting's unstretched, right? I work unstretched. I work on 10 paintings at a time. I make a huge mess. The freedom of that, even for the viewer, means they mean nothing. And when you frame it in the white cube, it changes like crazy. But conversely, and most people feel this way, the stretcher bar in the gallery is a cheat because it makes everything look so freaking good. Um, (laughs) I don't care about that so much, but I do love going to museums and seeing like a Rubens, you know, that's that's triple framed, quadruple framed. Like, uh, that's really cool. For my work, I don't, you know, just, I just, I like people who get to like the work. So I don't consider a painting done till it's shown. And even then it's not really done. And I like that people get to have the paintings in their life because you have to live with the work. It changes so much to live with work. Yeah. And it changes over time too. It's going to, it's going to look and land differently one day than it will three months from then. So um, it's always shifting. Another idea I think about is, once the work is outside of the studio, be it in a gallery or even if you post it on social media, it's no longer ours. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel that. I feel, I feel control over it in some ways, but I know what you're saying. It's like it's, it's not, it's not just yours anymore. That's yeah. for sure. You know, yeah. maybe that's Agreed. what I mean. Yeah. yeah. 
You know, I, you, you know, speaking of galleries, you've been incredibly active the past four months. You've had a bunch of shows. Yeah. Um, and they were all wonderful. Bravo on them. Um, I'm curious what that uh, intensity was like in terms of show after show uh, and having to produce, right? And if you were overwhelmed or if that was invigorating or that was like something that fed the work. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because it's, I think like producing as much as you produced and at the, at the, and at the success rate that you did. And what I mean by success is you like put up, put forward really strong shows. That's no easy feat. And I guess I'm just wondering how you pulled it off. Yeah. I mean, I really love showing. Um, I think probably many people, myself included, have like fantasy of like being gentle person painters and you are rich and you live in a castle and you kind of like come down and, whatever I'm trying to say my goal has always been to have bigger studios and be able to make what I want to make and some of that involves money and a lot of that involves career I mean shit art world career is like ridiculous but so you know so as I said the economics is part of it finding a way that I can make a lot of work I work on a lot of pieces at once and I work on a lot of pieces over years so like I have a backlog of work that I just keep working on. So it's not super hard to make work for me because I'm so, I love to show. Okay, I'll just talk about what happened during the pandemic. You know, I had no show scheduled and then Harper, my gallerist said like, oh, I've got this space. I, I actually reached out to him and I was like, I'd like to do a show. You know, I don't know what's going on. I don't, I mean, maybe no one's gonna buy art again. I want some money. You know, and I wanted I want to do a show. I I would show constantly if I could. So we did that. It was a small show. It was pretty easy. But then he he was walking around in New York and he saw this space and he said, hey, there's this little space down in Chelsea. It's affordable. Will you do a show with me in like, I don't know, four months? And again, as an artist, of course, you would take all the time in the world to make a show. But it's like, no, let's try this. I think just trying things is what I do. You know, I work with my friend Darren. Romanelli and we do all these installations. I've got an installation coming up at Goodwill stores coming up. It's like, let's just try things. Let's take the risk, see if we can do it, make paintings. You know, like the opposite is like overthink, overwork paintings, let all the voices in your head, uh, you know, have a million different plans. It's and everything comes show. crashing down. Yeah, I think it's good to show as much as you can. And maybe not I showed too much. I do think that could be the possibility. But I do think, like, you know, you're just working through things anyways. So, yes, of course, it helps you work through things. And and also that pressure is good. But, yeah, I mean, so for the Harper show that happened at the uh, 20 into 21, that was kind of a last minute show. I was desperate in the sense that the feelings that you have making a painting, the self-doubt and the the process gets sped up and gets intense. But again, I'm going to have it either way. I'm going to have it over nine months, a year and a half, or three months, <laughs> right? I'm lucky. I have a partner who's also an artist we can talk about. I have that support structure. And also, like I like challenges, and I like that. So what came out of that was some of the better paintings that I've made to date. And what came out of that is people being like, you know, I got lucky because I had a show where people were like, that's good. Let's look at that. And so, uh, you know, even like doing this with you, like I tend to say yes to things, obviously not everything anymore, but because I don't know, just, it's good to do stuff. (laughs) No, no, I appreciate that. These are all, these are all kind of good, good ethos to have yeah for like young artists i'd say like it's like how do you become an artist who if you want to show and you want a career it's like just show you know when i was in grad school we did shows in apartments and it's like how do you make paintings what are the secrets to making paintings paint there's no other secret you have to paint how do you show you just have to show like there's nothing else and then one day we'll die and great you know like 
So those are the two secrets. That's the secret. Yeah. It's basically simplifying everything. (laughs) You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you worked for Mark, Mark Rajan. And I wondered if you could, um, we could go back into that, that time period. Um, and I imagine there are huge lessons learned. Um, and you got to see how it's like a, like a studio is designed and run. Um, Mm -hmm. what were the takeaways from that experience? Uh, yeah. Well, so I'll just say it's, you pronounce his name Grochan. I'm sorry. Uh, no problem. But, you know, I went to undergrad and I went to grad school at UCLA and I've met a lot of famous artists and a lot of brilliant teachers. But if I had a kid and they wanted to be an artist, I'd say go work at an artist studio. That's like where the rubber meets the road. But, you know, I think like I really love Mark and that's a great time, but I would say uh, what I'm thinking about now, now that I do it, is having structure is good. When I started that job, I was just out of grad school. I made no money. My dad was like, why are you doing this? Like you should be teaching, but there was no teaching jobs for me. It was during the recession. Um, other artists were like, you don't want to work for artists because it zaps all your creativity. Um, you should teach. I just don't feel that way. You know, it was, in a sense, it became like a collaboration that wasn't a true collaboration because I was an employee, but that I got paid for. It gave me structure. It gave me a different type of rigor. You know, when I was in grad school, I'd sit around all day and then paint at night. And I learned so much and I developed so much work. I, You know, I would have done that anyways. And I think like, how bodies of work get started is very interesting. Like somebody was telling me about Donald Sultan, I think, painting the flowers. And it's like, oh, he, he worked and he worked at a place that had tiles. So he painted on these tiles. And I think everybody has these stories that are really exciting. And for me, it was like I primed cardboard for Mark and I started making these cages uh, and I got really into the composition. So I was getting paid to practice something, you know, that developed into my own thing. You know, it's like I got to work with like hundreds of dollars of gesso every day. And so I'm 28. I'm like broke, but I have a job now. I have a structure and I have a a way to practice. And then, of course, the other thing I'll just say about that is I was fortunate. The way Mark works is there's a bunch of people. We kind of just help mix paint for them and, and help them throughout the day. I was fortunate to see another artist, a great artist, paint for thousands of hours. So I have, you know, my 10,000, I have thousands of hours of my own painting, but I've also seen someone else paint for thousands of hours. And I have to say, I don't know how many people get to do that in the whole world. It's a really unique experience. That's its own school right there. It's incredible. Probably the best type (laughs) of school, right? Well, there's this beautiful disconnect because you're not making it. Yeah. Right. Like you don't have to, you don't have the pressure and you don't, and you have the distance, right. You know, like when you give someone else advice about their life, it's kind of the same thing as giving them advice about painting. It's like, well, you obviously should do this, you know, but uh, it, and then you have to learn about that. You're not in control of the hand, but uh, yeah, it was a great, that is an amazing, despite all the conversations and stuff about career and Mark is a great businessman and all these things. I learned a lot. But also, I had a built-in person that I had a painting conversation with every day. I mean, That's you know, it's cool. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. If people, yeah. if you can work for another artist, I say do it. And I know there's probably a lot of different versions, but uh, young people should go for that. Cool. Let's get back into your studio. Um, I think one of the things that I love hearing from other artists is how they manage studio visits because they can go in a number of different directions. And obviously it depends on who the visitor is. You know, you're going to probably run a visit differently if it's a artist friend coming over versus Mm -hmm. a collector or a gallerist. Um, But do you, do you alter how you manage a studio visit depending on who comes over or is it, or is it kind of a one size fits all? Do you clean up? Mm. Um, Is there any performance involved in terms of like, like being a certain way that you usually aren't? Yeah, I can tell everybody all the tricks. 
So the first trick is if you're having a gallery over that you really want to show with, you have to pretend you don't care about showing there to yourself because you will put too much pressure on yourself and you need to like be a badass. You know, things you don't care about, you get. Okay, is this real good advice? Probably not, but I'm just telling you that was one trick. So trying to get a show is different than, I'd say there's the big difference, trying to get something career-wise versus feedback. Um, a trick for collectors is collectors really like to feel like they discovered something. So hide a good painting behind another painting and then pull it out and they will, they'll love that. As if they're uh, the first viewer of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's also just the, the, the digging. You know, like you say, if you can do a super clean studio, do that. But I can't. I can't dedicate that time to that especially when I had another job. Um, so do little tricks and um, and tell them no a lot, you know, there you go. Um, but, you know, for me, I don't have a lot of friend, friends in general, but friend studio visits. Uh, I really, this is probably not healthy, but I also really believe in isolating myself because I'm so easily influenced and I'm so self-absorbed, I don't know, but so a lot of my visits over the past four years, they end up just being business visits, and I'm fine with that. Yeah, that goes right uh, back into the, the building of a career that you were talking about and like yeah. wanting to go for it. Yeah, and you just kind of, you know, I mean, a lot of people, they even if they say they just want to talk about money, and I think... Uh, I mean, and how much can you really bring to my, you know what I'll say is I did therapy for four or five years now, probably four or five years ago. Uh, and I eventually I was doing like four days a week, psycho analytical psychotherapy, psychoanalysis at that point. And that therapist really helped me being like the other person has their agency. Like they are bringing what they're bringing to the painting. And your job is to just share the work. So even though, like you were saying, it's like, okay, you have an elevator pitch, fine. But the real meat of it is you don't have to do anything. People can come over and they can like it or lump it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And yeah. my rule, I think, is the same as it was 10, 15 years ago as it is today is I got to, I got to be myself as best I can. If I try and be someone I'm not, I feel awful. I think that comes through in the exchange. And, yeah. um, then like, well, like after the fact, I'm like, well, I just torpedoed that whole thing. So I think showing up as yourself, I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, um, yeah. and something that's on a poster, but I think there's some val value to that. Well, and the uh, studio visit can be really emotionally draining. I think when you're young and you want things and yeah. of course we're also, you know, we're opening up to someone else you know there's a being vulnerable so like I say I don't do a ton of them I really don't I don't mind if it's just business because then I'm not really invested and uh you know you have to build up that thick skin you have to ha be a little detached and uh in terms of like people who come over to talk to you about your art I do like that maybe once or twice a year and then it's so rich you know like just like this conversation you can talk to somebody if you don't talk a lot about your work for a very short time and be like, whoa, I've got way too many ideas already, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, that's well said. Um, you know, the studio is a sacred space um, and I get yeah. when it needs to be closed off, it needs to be closed off. Totally respect that. Um, one, one question I, I historically ask is like, who, who would be a dream visitor that you'd like to have to your studio but I got to say, I think I saw you posted LeBron James at your studio not yeah. not that long ago. And, and I mean, that must have been pretty, pretty special, no? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things, again, this is kind of working for working for Mark Grochon, is that I've met a lot of famous people. And, you know, famous people are just people and famous. It's like whatever. But the thing that I've had that's been cool is um as i get older it's like oh there's all these people who are also older i mean i'm older than lebron 
you know, right? But who have been successful and are amazing people, you know? And so I don't, again, I kind of I tend to isolate myself, but um, there's so many people of our generation, I'm going to lump us together. I don't know how old you are, but who, you know, our generation was cool. And I know there's a, you know, I know there was a lot of people who don't like boomers. And now anybody who's older than like 30 is a boomer, but Gen X did a good job. And despite what anybody says, and there was a lot of people due to economic things who were um, creative. Like there's a lot of guys in the nineties who I talk to now that just were like doing stupid shit like skateboarders and they made businesses and they made their lives and they've thought about the world and they, I don't have kids, but they have kids. And like, so am I putting LeBron in that category? No, but like LeBron and Maverick and their guys are very cool people. Uh, and I've got to meet a lot of, I used to never like collectors. I've gotten to meet a lot of collectors. I think that's very cool. Uh, but in terms of dream, no, I don't really have a dream visitor in my studio. I'd like to be alone all the time and have no way. <laughs> you know my paintings sometimes keep me up at night hmm. among other things right well the painting yeah. will keep me up because there's some area of it i can't i can't resolve and it's driving me crazy and i'm thinking about well what if i like scratch that out or cut that out yeah. um, and then that's flowing alongside the well-being of my children or environmental collapse or my own personal woes like any number of anxieties really right that's my setup to ask you what keeps you up at night, if anything. Uh, yeah, not, not, oh, geez. You know, what I do is I watch TV at night, so I completely ignore my anxieties. Um, geez, Louise. That's a good question, you know? It's like uh, nothing. I, I don't worry about whatever random thing that is. It's, it's funny because what you're really asking is kind of like, about my unconscious struggles and I have them <laughs> and I you know they, I would gladly share them if they came up with like in this conversation in the right circumstance you know like what keeps me up at night is like my relationships you know like you know relationships to other people and I'd say you know again because of therapy like trying not to control other people because I used to be the kind of guy who would go to a party and then when I got home, I'd think about every single thing I said and how humiliated I was and all this stuff. I don't do that anymore. I tend to actually think about what was exciting about, like I said, I went to a fashion show last night. What was exciting? What meant something to me? Um, so I'm actually kept up more of what you were saying. I'm going to say in the positive light, thinking about painting and planning paintings and like getting to work on problems. I think people with anxiety or whatever, I think painters like to problem solve. And so, you know, that's like a gift from the process of working on the paintings. But again, you know, eventually you got to go put the brush on the canvas. So it's kind of unrelated to what you do at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I watch cartoons. I watch a lot of sports and I watch cartoons. That's what keeps me up at night. Yeah, I, I get that. I don't have kids and I don't worry about the environmental future so much. And I don't have to, I'm not responsible for a pet. And those are all things that at times I want, but for the most part, I'm really like a kid myself that I don't have to do that. And I know the beauty of having children. I mean, I don't know it, but I know from all my friends, I mean, babies are amazing, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I get all that. And I also agree with what you're saying about, painting is problem solving. I mean, at the end of the day, I think making a painting is solving problems and managing infinite decisions. So yeah, those are fun things to tackle sometimes. Yeah. Unfortunately, they keep me up at night every now and then. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a, yeah. I mean, better that than anything else, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, on that front, you know, m making paintings can be an entirely frustrating pursuit sometimes. Yeah. And I guess I, I want to know when you're satisfied in the studio or with your own work or yeah. in your life outside of the studio, what's driving yeah. you forward? Yeah. Um, I don't know what's driving me forward. And I think that does, that is a great question. You know, I think there was a time where for whatever, like ego wound or childhood trauma or whatever, 
I wanted to make great paintings. I still want to make great paintings, but I will go out on a limb and say I've made a few great paintings. And I have a few paintings that I would put up against anybody's paintings from all of history. I'm not saying I'd win, but I'd put them up. And so that's a satisfying feeling and that's weird to have because you're kind of like, oh, I should be in the struggle and miserable. But again, I'm 42 now. But, you know, I have this thing, and I've had it for a few years now, that I will make a, a mark, I will be a certain part of a painting, and I have a real strong emotional response to it. It fires my brain, and it makes me tear up. I, I feel like I'm going to, I cry, you know, and is it, you know, I've talked to Caitlin and my partner about, like, there's a sadness and loss when a painting's completing itself, and maybe it's related to that, but paintings have some significance to me. The fact that I get to have that experience, it used to be when I was young, you get high off a painting, you know, and I remember being young and being, it's almost like being young and sex. It's like, I remember being high off my ideas. And I think everybody still goes to this, like, I'm a genius, I'm a failure through your whole time of being a painting. But I remember first getting that young teenager, having that with painting. Now I don't put a lot of credence into that, but the emotional resonance that happens, I'm sorry, I'm sort of forgetting your question, but when you said satisfied, that's what I'd no, say. No, that's, when it, I have that's that, it. Yeah, when I have that experience, I'm kind of, I could stop. I keep working that day, but it's like, I could stop. The painting might not even be like, quote unquote, done for the world, but it's that's it right there. I've had it. And so, uh, I, but as I'm answering this, I'm wondering, am I, do I continue to chase that? It's like, no, yeah, I continue to chase the resonance that painting has, the fact that it's meaningful. There's a lot of paintings I see, you go to a show and you feel nothing like, and I don't remember feeling this when I was going to Chelsea, like in the late nineties, you know, now it's like I can see paintings and feel dead inside. And I want to see a painting and feel, if I feel dead, I want to feel like I want to kill myself dead. Like I want to feel stuff like how music makes you feel when you're heartbroken. Like, so look, are my paintings that good? I don't know. But what I'm saying is I want it to have resonance. Yeah, that's beautifully said. And I love the, uh, the word chase that you used. I think there's a chase in in this for me and going after that feeling and trying to feel that feeling more than I do. Um, so I'll back all that. Do you have any culture recommendations for the listeners out there? And maybe it's a film that you've seen recently or a book you've read or something else entirely? Hmm, yeah, you know, I don't love reading a lot. I have this huge lot. You're like you're looking, you can currently see my library. It's huge. I, don't I was going like to say, reading. you're saying I don't like reading. <laughs> right behind you are at least a dozen bookcases stacked yeah. with books. <laughs> yeah, it's mostly art books. Um, and then, you know, like I do really like movies, but I'm not like a movie aficionado. So I don't, like I just saw the Macbeth thing and I kind of liked that. But, um, and then we talked about sports, like you said. Uh, I love being in the arena and seeing all that. And I do think there's like a natural competition thing. But the biggest cultural thing I did during the pandemic is we went with Mary Weatherford to uh, Site Santa Fe, or maybe she wasn't at Site. Yeah, Site Santa Fe for closing every show. And, you know, she had it, it was kind of like a weekend wedding where we all like went out there. But, um, we went to the Georgia O'Keeffe house, but we went to the opera in Arizona and it was open air opera. Um, it wasn't like the death of Figaro, but it was something like that opera people would know. So I would just say the opera, like I, I don't go to enough shows, enough music shows. Like we saw Kendrick Lamar a few years ago. <laughs> I would definitely Kendrick Lamar, obviously, but go to the opera in Arizona or any opera because as an artist it's like it's great 
Yeah, yeah. What a great, what a great thing to say. The opera, but in Arizona. I love those two things put together. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you can make it, but it's it's the thing that I've never experienced. Is it's it's an open air venue, like a shell, but really fancy for rich people. But um, the other thing is, I hadn't been to the opera in years, and now they put the little translation on this bar below, so um, you get all the pleasure of like not being able to understand with being able to understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been to the opera once at the Brooklyn Academy of Music uh, with with my wife, and it was magical. I loved it. Yeah, and it really is. It, you know, maybe just circle back to the to the satisfaction piece. Maybe maybe one of my goals is to make paintings or artwork that feel like going to the opera sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I I want when I went, it was like put my painting, and we were with Mary Weatherford, so of course there's like a lighting issue, but it's like put my painting on that freaking stage. I thought this last night at the fashion show, it's like put a spotlight on it, but it's like there is a beauty of painting that you get all the sublime and you get the kind of like intimate at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, and it just hits you in a different way than a static image does, right? Music. I mean, we're just going back to wiring, we're wired to, to intake and feel music differently than I think a static image. So yeah, operas, right. operas a pretty powerful thing. What's on the horizon? What's something that you're looking forward to? Or maybe there's a dream project that's not even, not even, um, a real thing, but it's something you'd love to do. Yeah. I mean, I have a million ideas for shows. I, I would like to do some more sculpture. Um, and then there's some things that I don't, that I want to share, but I don't want to, uh, like, ex- I, w- I want to like keep my secrets for myself for, uh, projects, uh, for shows. I got a show in New York in May with Vito. I've got a show at this Goodwill center in Los Angeles with my friend Baron. Um, and, some and to be clear, the, is it the Goodwill as in the used clothing? Yeah. It's like Salvation Army on the East yeah. Coast. I don't That's know. Fantastic. You guys have good. Well, when I was a kid, we do. We, really we do. We yeah. do. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's cool. It's for anybody listening. If you're at freeze and now it's not going to be out by that time. Uh, <laughs> look on my website or something. You'll see the Goodwill project. Uh, you know, we've been doing these projects, my friend and Darren and I where you know, cause he's a clothing guy and then we engage a musician. And so we did an album uh, last year with the alchemist and now we're doing an album with james fauntleroy who's this amazing musician producer and so like the collaborative thing is very exciting to me um yeah god there's so much i want to do but also i kind of just want to like get a bar in upstate new york and retire i'd really like to retire and just like like i say be a gentleman painter and putter so there's quite a tension with those two things (laughs) yeah yeah that all sounds just about right (laughs) Spencer, this has been incredible. I really appreciate you sharing so much about your practice and your studio and your work. It's been a pleasure to engage in this way and learn more about your stuff. Thanks for participating in this project and let's go Rams, I guess. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see on Sunday. Yeah, nice to meet you, man. We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.